one point you moved from just having money in the market, then taking your first step into one of your first funds. Walk us through that process. Why a fund or syndication over the equity market? I'm out of all the options. Why private investments? Private investments to me give you a feeling and an opportunity to be a little bit more involved and to have a little bit more, not necessarily say, but intelligence about what you're doing. To do that in the stock market, you have to learn about billion dollar companies and about giant national and sometimes international and global marketplaces and the fluctuating macro economy and all those things, which you still need to do in private investing. But it felt like a new place for me to learn more, deploy more, and potentially expand my wealth at a greater level. I think the other thing that I saw is that, quote unquote, everybody's doing it. Everybody with net worths that are 10, 15, 20x mine. So that must be the path that smart people take to get to those levels of wealth. All right, welcome to another episode of the Legacy Wealth Podcast, where we help accredited business owners become educated and get access to private investments. We do this by providing inside and access to successful fund managers and investors across multiple asset classes. And said another way, our promise to you is that by listening to our show, you'll learn how to access the high returns of private investments without losing your shirt. I'm your host, Pascal Wagner, and joined with me today, I have my co-host, Mike Klein. And we are interviewing Wayne Beringer, uh, f- joining us from Seattle, Washington. Right. Uh, welcome, Wayne. Thanks. Good to see you. Uh, I'm going to do a quick intro on on Wayne. Originally, uh, Wayne worked as a director of communications and branding for Boeing uh, for over seven years. And today, he owns and is the acting CEO for WBC In-House Advisors, where he helps companies market and communicate and also provides leadership consulting and turnarounds. He's been investing in private investments since 2021, has invested over 600K in over six deals, and has invested in all different types of assets, including self-storage, multifamily, and different businesses. Uh, so with that, uh, want to start off with Wayne, can you just kind of walk us through your journey of how you eventually started investing in funds? Yeah, sure. No problem. So I say all my life, I've thought I was, a, I should be an entrepreneur or I wanted to be an entrepreneur and finally did that in 2020 after a long career in marketing, advertising, PR. And then like you said, at Boeing. And I uh, watched all the bigger pockets podcast, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and found GoBundance. And when I found GoBundance, uh, it was a sort of lightning rod of, wow, there are alternative ways to invest besides the stock market, which I never really had the stomach and the intelligence to do the way that either Warren Buffett says, which either you've got to be all in and learn it and know it all, or you set it and forget it. And I wasn't great at either of those. I don't know if anybody can resonate with that, but so uh, when I started seeing how other people uh, invest and make money in the real estate, you know, skyrocketing market, I just thought, yes, this is what I've always thought and felt. And I'm going to do it too. And I had some cash to deploy. And I heard all the big shots on all the the podcasts that everybody listening probably listens to. The cash is trash. Don't let inflation 
dilute your your wealth, deploy your cash. And, and so <laughs> I did that. Uh, and I did that in six deals, like you said, and have learned a lot going through that process and since. Yeah, walk, walk us through uh, maybe the first thing that kind of comes to mind is y- you played in the stock market. You, you still are in the stock market. What what percentage of your portfolio is in the market versus private investments? Yeah, so I've got 35 or 40% of, of everything we have that's deployable uh, in private investments and the rest in the market and then some cash. So it's... I might be overweighted. Some people might say I'm overweighted on the private side. Other people would say, you need to get the rest of that out of the market and into the right private investments and some safety as well. So that's the thought process and the learning I'm going through now. How how, um, how did you arrive at that number, Wayne? How did it become 40%? Did you target it? Did it end up that way? Like, what was the journey and the thought process there? I would say at the risk of embarrassment, it was irrational exuberance at the start. It was, wow, all of the guys that I'm seeing have all these different, you know, quote unquote, passive investments, lines of passive income. And I don't want to put all my eggs in that basket because I'm learning, but it seems like all these guys that are smarter than me is what they're doing. So let me find some deals with some people that I trust and and let's see how this goes. It was that scientific. Got it. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I guess, so at one point you moved from just having money in the market to then, then taking your first step into one of your first funds, walk us through that process. Why, why the, a fund or syndication o- over the equity market. I mean, you've talked about that you don't like, uh, you weren't good at uh, the the two different strategies of investing in the market, but uh, out of all the options, why private investments? Yeah, a great question. So private investments to me give you a feeling and an opportunity to be a little bit more involved and to have a little bit more, not necessarily say, but intelligence about what you're doing, uh, where, where you're allocating your funds. To do that in the stock market, you have to learn about billion dollar companies and about giant national and sometimes international and global marketplaces and the fluctuating macro economy and all those things, which you still need to do in private investing, particularly if you run out beyond, you know, niches like multifamily real estate or something. But it felt like a new place for me to learn more, deploy more, and potentially expand my wealth at a greater level. I think the other thing that I saw is that, quote unquote, everybody's doing it. Everybody with net worths that are 10, 15, 20x mine. So that must be the path that smart people take to get to those levels of wealth. And how did that how did that first fund investment go? Like from, you know, did you reach out to them? Did they reach out to you? How many meetings did you have? And what was kind of like the triggering moment where you're like, I'm going to make this investment. I'm going to write this check. Yeah, I think um, I, I probably did two or three pretty close together um, in those early stages of of late 2021. Uh, the decision making processes involved 
talking with the GPs, talking with people who know the GPs, looking at the PPMs, which at the time I, I didn't really know that much about. And if you don't know what a PPM is, it's the it's sort of the baseline information about the financial structure uh, and asset class of the deal. Um, talk to other guys that were investigating these particular deals as well. And then try to listen to uh, some broader opinions about what the marketplace looked like for multifamily or self-storage and, and make a judgment about whether or not I felt comfortable that these were risks at the time that seemed to be worth taking. A lot of people told me that I asked more questions in due diligence than 90% of the other people that are in on their deals. And what I can tell you now is I didn't ask half of the questions that I should have. So we can investigate that if you want to, but that's that's kind of where my decision making was at the time. Well, let's let's dive into those. But first, did you did you choose the asset class or did you connect with the manager and they introduced that asset class? Yeah, I would say yes to both. I think I explored a lot of different asset classes and I landed on multifamily because multifamily seemed impervious. It seemed like it has a long track record of good returns, stable occupancy uh, in, a, in a recessionary time. People are going to need less expensive, more accessible housing. I live in a market where housing is insane in Seattle. And more and more people are trying to get that, you know, more affordable place to live. So that was multifamily. Uh, I found an operator that I really trust. And then I found another operator that I, I knew a little bit who had a, a good track record and was in a market that I wanted to be in. And so that's how those decisions were. Self-storage. I got referred. That was the first deal I ever did was a self-storage deal. I got referred by someone within the GoBundance family. That's the person who told me I asked more questions than everybody else. Uh, and I really liked the economics, the way that that looked and learned and heard and saw research that said, you know, self-storage is really recession resistant. So, oh, great. That, that's a smart play too. Um, and then another self-storage GP I, I know and trust through the GoBundance family as well. So, uh, and then the other business one was a little bit more speculative, a little more sexy. Let's try this. The, Returns seemed astronomical. Um, so that's how I got into those. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, you, you mentioned it, so let's dive into it. What are, what are the questions you would have asked or you recommend everyone asking? And kind of what was the lesson behind that epiphany, right? Oh, I should have asked this question. Yeah, I think uh, the questions that I absolutely should have asked that everybody should ask going forward or, or at any time, and, and maybe more sophisticated guys do this already, but I'm doing it from now on is do you have a rate cap do you have floating rate debt is your deal dependent in other words is is my getting my capital back dependent on a refinance event or and we just just for our listeners could you define some of these terms yeah in case they're not familiar with them so like floating rate cap See, I'm talking like I know all this stuff. I, I would have asked the same thing you just asked just a year ago. So great. I appreciate you stopping me. Sure. So floating rate debt, a lot of these deals, especially in multifamily, even in self-storage, 
get a uh, a bridge loan to do some construction to revamp the property, uh, and then they expect to elevate the occupancy, uh, elevate the value of the property, and then in two, three, four, five years, refinance. That bridge loan often, especially prior to this past year and five, six years before, has been variable rate debt because debt was so cheap. Getting a loan was three, four percent. Why pay the extra to cap that? And so they just kept it uh, floating and it was cheap and everybody won. Our rate cap now, everybody has learned in the last year, is an amount of money you pay to the financer, to the bank, to make sure that your loan percentage never goes beyond a certain number. And a couple of loans that I'm in did not do that. They were thinking, and, and I signed up for it, so I'm a limited partner. <laughs> I, I wasn't attentive. I didn't know, and, and I didn't know what I didn't know. Uh, and so now the interest payment on those deals are above what the GPs forecasted. And so they're, they're uh, struggling to keep afloat on the amount of reserve, amount of the amount of safety net money that they keep in these deals is all going to paying this elevated uh, loan payment. So that's what a rate cap is. That's what floating rate debt is. Yeah. So the first one you mentioned was, was floating rate caps. Keep going. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if I keep going on that, I, I think just the, the notion that you have to have, not you, I mean, not lecture. <laughs> I have learned that I need to have fixed rate debt in every deal going forward. That de-risks, that takes risk out of my investment. If I understand that the, the GP, the general partner and the finances of the deal are fixed, then there's there's less risk in that part of the equation. Uh, the rate cap is another way to do that. So it could have floating rate debt, but it's they purchased a ceiling to that floating rate debt. That's important to me too. That's another element of de-risking, which means there's a better chance of, of me getting my money back. There, there's a lot of other things that that I pay attention to now that I am before. Um, those are two of the biggest. And you mentioned, you know, we spent a little bit of time together before the podcast. You mentioned how critical it is for fund managers, and I'm a fund manager, so this is amazing, you know, insight to to communicate and communicate well. What does that look like in a perfect world um, or in a perfect fund now that you've kind of had these learnings, Wayne? Um, what would you like to see as an LP, um, especially when times are tough, like you said? Yeah. Yeah, I... You know, I mentioned up front, or Pascal mentioned it, I'm a long-time advertising communications, ran PR firms and ad agencies and things, and then did it at Boeing too. So I'm an LP, and I know the techniques and the methods for how these things can be executed in a highly valuable way, even when things are getting tough. What I've noticed as I've been on the LP side of that more and the communication side is, you know, previous to the last, uh, what, nine to 12 months, guys were simply talking in their deals about the equity multiple 
and the pref and the market and how Phoenix and Austin are all the stats about how these markets are great and what class this particular property is a class a class B class C, whatever, please send us your checks. What I haven't seen now, and I'm surprised by it, and it's probably more because I'm in a couple of situations where it's not working and because I know how the communications can work better. They're still pitching deals the same way. People are still pitching deals as if all this interest rate and, you know, uh, recently there was a $250 million apartment complex in Houston that was written up in the Wall Street Journal that got foreclosed on. Like, it's not just small deals. It's, you know, BlackRock is getting out of this space for now, right? Like, it's a legitimate issue. So when GPs are pitching deals, my recommendation would be that you talk about capital preservation first and how the deal is safe and and all the elements of de-risk that are built into this deal. Then I think you talk about, and so now that we have that baseline set, here's the market, here's the market dynamics, here's the asset class and why the asset class matters and things like that. Also, as I've seen people uh, work on deals that are struggling, I notice something interesting too. I think in the last five, six, seven years, people haven't had to work that hard at marketing their properties to get them leased up, whether it's storage or multifamily or whatever. They put out a sign. Uh, they have a website. They're on apartmentfinders.com, whatever, and that's pretty much all it takes. Now, occupancy in some places is not the same. But people haven't switched to, okay, our Google reviews are not as good as they used to be. We need to go fix that. Okay, we used to just throw up a sign, the cheapest sign we could find. We've got to make this sign something that people can see and that doesn't detract from the curb appeal. Uh, Property managers, I don't see them selling as consultively as I think they need to to help get the leases up. Uh, I'm seeing multifamily GPs pinch pennies around showing, uh, having a model that's refurbished to show. Why? Because it takes money to refurb a model and keep it vacant. And we want to get money flowing. But I've secret shopped a couple of these things. And when you walk in and you can't see a refurbished model as a potential leaser, that, that doesn't make me feel good. I can go down the street and find something better, right? So I, I think the way the website copy are written for some of these properties are just property managers, right? And standard copy, it's not inviting. It doesn't make people feel comfortable. And in an environment where we want to give people an elevated perception of value and we need to work harder to attract them, we have to make them feel comfortable and like there's something more than just a place I live that's going to raise the rent in six months, right? So you mentioned something interesting in there, which was uh, you secret shopping. And uh, my interpretation of secret shopping is you literally walked into the apartment building or, or a self-storage facility and then pretended you were a prospective customer and and like walk walk us through that. Like, what are you looking for? What are you asking? What are you? What are things you notice? Yeah, great question. That is something else that I will always do from now on if I invest in a hard asset is to show up 
I mean, if you're putting 50,000 or 100,000 or whatever, or more than that, even to me, it's if I do my due diligence remotely, it's worth the thousand dollar plane flight hotel trip to just make sure everything is as they claim. So what I've done is gone into deals that I'm a part of. Again, I'm going to do this before going forward, but now and drive up to the apartment complex and act as a renter and say, Hey, I saw your sign. That's two months free rent. Tell me about that. And just, you know, act like I'm interested in being uh, a potential resident there. What am I looking for? I'm looking for what do the salespeople say? Do they make me feel comfortable? Do they suggestive sell to me in a way that's not used car-ish, but that helps me get excited about the property? Do I see that there's some kind of a familial feel? I'm talking about multifamily right now. But when apartment complexes are competing for lease-ups, you know, everybody wants to be in a place that feels, you know, like I said, more than just a, a place to have a roof and have the rents go up. Um, I'm looking for when I go visit uh, the model that they have, how does that feel? Does it smell? Does it look like a place I'd want to live? Um, or, or does it not? How are the grounds? Are the grounds nice and manicured or are they not? You know, all those things that you would look at if you're looking for a place. Um, what I find when I do that is I get a really good feel for how the ownership and the management is caretaking that property. That's super interesting, Wayne. You know, I um, when you originally said it, I was thinking, you know, communication, investor communication. Um, so communication to you as an investor in the fund. And and maybe that is part of it. If it is, let's talk about that. But that's super interesting. So you're actually, you know, you're taking on yourself to do some hands-on boots on the ground diligence on the actual assets that are going to be fueling your returns as an investor in the fund, which I think is just amazing and super insightful. I would say, so I would break it into that piece to me is more due diligence. You're right on the communication and marketing side. I'm a, I'm a geek on this stuff. So I think of marketing as pros- trying to draw prospects in. And I think of communication as communicating to people who are your stakeholders, clients, Customers, residents, investors, whatever the case might be. On the due diligence side, uh, there are communication elements to that, right? But on the communication side, when you're communicating to investors, if I'm an investor on a deal that's working, I want to know why it's working. Likewise, if I'm an investor on a deal that's not, tell me straight up, why is it not working? Don't, don't give me the runaround in the, in the, in the emails and the newsletters and things like that, right? Like we're all big boys and girls. We want to know. I think the other thing that I'd like to see these guys do more and better is if and when foresight fails, meaning we expect rates to not go double or triple, but they do. And there's a situation that we didn't expect. You know, a lot of GPs have. 50, 100, 150 investors who are successful, high-performing professionals. How can GPs put their ego aside and go, what can I, what kind of knowledge 
can I gain from my group of stakeholders who are really vested with skin in the game to help turn these tides? Because we all didn't see this coming, but it's here. So let's, let's make the best of it. And I see a lot of folks who at least portray the air that they know how to do everything. I, we're doing everything we can. My view is, and I've seen it in the companies that we turn around and the marketing that we've done for groups forever. If it's only your view, it may be everything you can do, but it's not everything that can be done. So let's have a discussion about that and learn from one another and see if we can turn the tides that way. Do you as an LP really uh, want that? I mean, when I think of myself as an LP, I view this as... uh one, I'm, pa- I'm passive, I'm limited. Um, so not much I can do. And, and to me, it's, I look at this as a, okay, I got burned and what did I learn from this? And then how can I avoid that moving forward? You're, you're on the other hand, wanting to get, uh, maybe involved somehow. What, what I'm saying is a, a hundred percent in agreement with you. If I'm getting burnt, I'm responsible for that hundred percent. Like I'm responsible for the decision that led to my money being at risk, right? And and potentially participating in the upside or getting burnt, like you said. In addition to that, my mindset is never give up, never give up, never give up. And if there are obvious low-hanging fruit things that are in control of the GP that I can help with, surely there's other people that can help too, a 30-minute phone call that's genuinely, hey, Wayne, I know you've got a marketing background. Can you help us think through this? Sure. Like, I got skin in the game. I made the decision. Why can't I help? I certainly agree with you. And I, I, I'm, I consider myself still a relatively new investor in this space. If I had 10 years, I wouldn't probably have to worry about getting involved in this level because I know the operators who've had a track record with me. I don't have that right now. So if there's a, an opportunity to help and get the, get the thing turned around because we didn't foresee some things. Yeah. I'm, I'm open to that. And I could be the odd one on that, but that's how I'm wired. So yeah. Something I'm also hearing is so, you know, it sounds like so you've made, you've made six investments, some of which, uh, are now somewhat going sideways due to these rate caps or rate locks not being in place. Uh, but you're still, you're talking about this in a way where it's like in my deals moving forward, I'm still uh, interested, like, uh, and and going to do these different types of due diligence. Like, to me, you know, I, I totally get the idea of being burned and and maybe not wanting to continue here. What's what's the overarching reason that you? still want to continue investing in this space given that you you have like it's you should expect that deals are going to go sideways when you when uh whenever you're making investments not every investment will turn out why um how do you what's your mindset there as you continue on this journey yeah man i love that question because my mindset six months ago was severe and intense stomach cramps and upset and just night sweats and the whole thing but we've all had Dates gone bad and not sworn off women or men or whatever. <laughs> and, and that's how my higher, you know, thinking self has processed this now. There are good deals to be had, especially if you have the discipline and the patience 
and the fortitude to, to do the diligence in the right way. I also know that I know so much more now, like night and day, which is why I'm not nervous about saying I've made mistakes because I have definitely, like you said, Pascal, learned from those mistakes. And I'm really eager to take that learning. And, you know, not all the deals are bad. There's five of them that are, four of them that are really good, five of them that are in decent shape. It's just this one that's not great. So uh, I also know that my stock market mentality is not, I'm not going to go diving into quarterly earnings for 600 companies and pick the three best and right. And I just don't believe in the next five years, the market's going to return that much. And I'm not as, as young and vibrant as you. So I've got to, I've got to juice this, this return mechanism in a shorter window. So. So it sounds like you still think that private investments are really good alternative to full allocation in the stock market. You still do believe that. Yeah, I, if what I would say that that's true for me is I would broaden that to private investing being real estate, maybe tech funds, certainly small business acquisition or partnerships in small business, not limited partnerships, but actual partnerships. So if you classify it like that, yes, I'm def- I definitely believe that those are places where your money can work harder. Now, you have to work harder. What I've learned is there's no free lunch, right? There's no easy solutions. There's no, oh, hey, Johnny says that's a good investment. I'll do it too. Red alert on that, right? Johnny's financial situation is completely different than yours, than mine. So yeah, uh, I think private investing is very exciting. It's much more interesting to me. And I, I think the upside is still there if you do the work. Do you feel like, Wayne, this is... Uh, made you more curious in other asset classes that are accessible through private investments as well. It sounds like you've mostly focused on real estate. And I think, you know, that makes sense for all the reasons in the groups that you were in. But do you think just being exposed to real estate opportunities and funds specifically has made you want to broaden? And you mentioned tech funds, you know, there's venture, private equity, right? All different kinds of funds. Has that made you interested in allocating to those asset classes through private funds. Yeah, hundred percent. There's laundromat. There's, there's funds you can get into now that invest in laundromats. Like whoever thought of that, right? There's funds for small business. There's all kinds of them. And I think that, uh, again, you have to do due diligence. Like I'm always just going to say that mostly to remind myself, but if you do that, these are places where a, a small business has so much more upside then pick a Fortune 500 company, right? Um, and you can do more detailed, or at least I now am more skilled at doing the right due diligence that I need to for this these types of deals than I am looking at IBM's financials and making sense of all of that. So if if maybe maybe a cool exercise, I'm making this up on the moment, but you've, you're kind of you're kind of inspiring he, me here. If you had to rank them the most important to the least important and least important, not meaning it's not important, but if you, if you had to say asset class, um, team, and then, you know, the, the vehicle or, or the nuances, what do you think draws you the most as a potential LP? Is it like you hear about an asset class and you're like, Oh, I want to go find a fund. Is it you hear about a team? 
Um, and not necessarily just here in the sense, but when you're looking at the deal itself, what ranks most important to you? Yeah. So I, I want to go ahead and answer just vulnerably. When I hear about a deal, what interests me is shiny object syndrome. I'm like, oh, I've never heard of that. Let's check that out. Or, oh, I've looked at 10 multifamily deals. Let me see how this one looks. Then I get past that and I'm more patient and more deliberate. The, the, as I look at diligence now, it's much more about uh, asset class. So where's the asset class uh, in the relative to the macroeconomic environment? Yeah. Why is multifamily as an asset class the right place to be right now? Not just, mm-hmm. hey, everybody's making money in multifamily. No, that doesn't work for me anymore. It's in that context, uh, not only of the macro, uh, but also of the region. So multifamily right now in places like North Carolina is very different than in places like Phoenix and Orlando today. So that's a big key is sort of that triangle of region, asset class, and macro. Then I look at the deal and try to figure out what are the levers of de-risking that this GP has put in place. And we've talked about those fixed rate debt and or rate caps. And then how do I get my money back? Is my money return based primarily on a refinance event or an exit? If so, the Burr strategy, which is what that is, if you listen to Bigger Pockets, it's the whatever the acronym means, but it's the buy it and rehab it and refinance it and stuff. That's what a lot of these deals still are. But today, if you look at the interest rates and where some people like Ray Dalio and other you know, big macro guys talk, there's more than a little potential that rates are going to continue to rise. Maybe not in the short term, but in that longer term period, if we can't get inflation. So if rates continue to rise and we're counting on a refi event, that refi is going to be more expensive. And if we're counting on an exit, it's going to be more expensive for people to acquire that property. So are those numbers true in that sort of stress test? Or does the property or asset cash flow from day one? To me, that's safer today. It's not as sexy today. It's not the multiples aren't as big. Um, but boy, it, it sure feels safer. So those are some of the things that I look at. How do you, how do you, um, you know, I know everybody has a personal preference. How do you think about safety versus maximizing returns? Yeah. Great question. Uh, it, it's a, it's a massive push pull for me. Uh, which maybe this for, for many people, but one of the first deals I got in, I got in primarily because it was sexy and the multiples were gigantic. And I knew a lot of people were getting in it who had visited this, this business and said, yeah, I'm going to get in it too. As I've done more diligence on that deal, there seems to be less clarity for me about the depths and specificity around how we're going to return and what the market is and all that. So yeah, the there's no doubt that a a 3x or a 5x multiple is like, oh, let, let's look at that. Like, who doesn't want that? 
But then again, it's calm down. It's actually due diligence and look at, okay, how safe is the actual return? I also would say that I am much more interested now in deals that do uh, sort of perform on a monthly cash flow basis back to me because that feels safer. That gets, uh, that reduces my risk in the rest of my life. Like if my business goes down in the recession and all that. So that's a switch that I've made in the last two years as well. Do you think, do you think this is partially because of the deals um, going like one of your deals going sideways or is it like a state of the economy? Do you feel like you're maybe being in? I mean, one of the things that's going through my head is, you know, these are, there are natural psychological cycles that happen, uh, in the world of investing, right? Like in, in 2020 and 2021. And, uh, like it was kind of a, a market of exuberance. And, and, you know, as the famous Warren Buffett quote, you only know, uh, how well everyone does when the tide's going out or you see who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. And, and it feels like that is happening now, uh, in the space. And you're really able to see, which deals or operators are still, you know, they're staying steady on the course and they're, they're able to just keep making distributions or staying on, on target on the business plan. And, uh, and then there are others where, uh, all that's, that's going sideways. And so I, I, I would imagine that the investor community is starting to shift gears in, in being more conservative where, uh, yes, it does pay to be more uh, it, it pays to do the due diligence for the deals but uh i'd almost argue that uh i would try and fight that urge to focus more on um maybe safer deals now because when the markets are down that is the best time arguably to be investing how do you- how do you think about th- that in your psychology and in your investing journey and your investment goals of wh- what you're trying to do for retirement? And hundred percent, yeah. So I'll, I'll admit full transparency on that sort of push pull psychology. Right when things are great, you think you're smart, and when things are not great, man, I, I'm not so smart anymore. Right. So <laughs> I, I, yeah, hundred percent on that. I, the way I look at our environment now from a macro sort of perspective and I'm, I'm a marketing guy, I'm not a macro economist. So take this for what it's worth. Everybody I talk to, everybody I listen to, everybody I know who talks about this says that the tougher parts are coming and that in the next 6, 12, 18, 24 months, there are going to be deals in that time frame where cap rates are going to be more accessible to acquire. So for me right now, that safety, especially with some liquidity or some access to the capital, if not money market or CD, uh, something that's 30 or 60 or 90 days where I can get the money is very attractive because I can make a little while I'm accumulating and stabilizing cash to be ready for that time when you're, I agree with you 100%. That's going to be the time to actually get back into some things. Uh, and or acquire properties directly. So that's how I'm kind of looking at that that dynamic. So I, I've got a, a longer question here, um, but it's related to this idea of of picking picking and ass- assessing funds. So 
the the typical investor that would invest in funds uh, tends to be someone that has some degree of expertise that they leverage to create cash flow. You are good at marketing. Um, you you have that skill, uh, and so it doesn't really make sense for you to maybe be investing in other marketing things because you should be able to leverage your expertise to get a higher return Directly. personally. That's right. Um, knowing that and knowing that the general consensus is that you should be investing in funds that give you access to expertise that falls outside of your own, how, how would one assess whether a fund or a GP is a good one or not, you know, without understanding that particular asset class or fund well? Do you, are you still learning with that or how would you approach that? I can tell you how I have approached it and how I'm approaching it now. Yeah. How I have approached it in the past is, Hey, I know all these guys. They say bet on the jockey first. They say this guy, this gal is great. That's good enough for me. You want to be optimistic. You want to maybe avoid doing some work on the diligence to be frank. And you know, everybody says it's great. So great. When times go down. You start thinking about, well, everybody said that about Madoff too. (laughs) That's not enough. That's just not enough for me going forward. So it's like I said, it's showing up in person. It's meeting the people in person. I would say this. One of the things that I did was, uh, I don't want to say make mistakes, but deploy more money more quickly as opposed to little by little. Learning over time, those relationships, those GPs, those people who perform, and then going more with those folks. So that's the way I'm approaching it now is uh, just sort of being more deliberate about the, the spreading out of it and that, hey, prove it to me and then I'll give you more. And that way you hear things, you take a small risk based on what you hear and what you know at the time, and then it's proven out and you give more or you don't give more. That's how I do. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I would also argue that I, I mean, one of my main goals when I started uh, making private investments was I wanted to understand uh, how the game was played in each different asset class. And so one of my objectives was, okay, I want to invest in one self-storage deal, one multifamily deal, one oil and gas deal. And so, you know, I've, I've invested in 10, 10 different funds now. And, uh, and I actually just think being in the deal in and of itself, getting the investor updates, um, that the GPs send out. A lot of the times they're educational, uh, or they're, they're, you know, you're explaining what they're explaining why things are going well. Or if you have a, a good GP, they're telling you why things are not going well. Uh, and like all of, there's just something different and you just pay attention a lot more when you're actually invested in the deal. And, um, that, that's, I've followed a lot of that same strategy that you're talking about now of just, okay, put in, put in an initial amount. See how it works. Um, and it, not all of us have the luxury to wait until a downturn, but now arguably I would imagine is the best time to start, uh, investing and doing due diligence in these funds because one, you know, all of the people who have not been great communicators, uh, and all of the deals that have started to go sideways. And so, uh, all the ones that are performing well now, I would have a higher likelihood of 
being great operators that you would want to trust your capital with. I totally agree with that. It's one of those things. And maybe I've told myself this because it's the situation that I'm in. And so it saves me from the cliff, you know, from taking a dive. But in any kind of investing, stock market, buying a business, I own my own business, whatever it is, you're going to lose some money. Money is going to be lost. Now, there might be some brilliant guys, even Buffett and Charlie Munger talk about they've lost billions of dollars. So once I was able to like get comfortable with that, even though I've lost money before in the stock market, for sure. I realize exactly what you're saying, Pascal, that when you're in it, it, there is no replacement for being in it. You can study it. You can look at it from a distance, all that stuff. But it feels physically different to be in a deal. And you can't mimic. I haven't found a way, I should say, to mimic that feeling from the external as I'm learning. So, yeah, I might lose some money on one of these deals. Uh, but man, I learned a lot from that. You know, could I have paid that money for an MBA? Yeah. But would I have felt what I'm feeling right now? You know, probably not. So yeah, yeah. I look at it that way and I look at, I'm going to keep going. I'm not going to stop. It's not time to get scared. It's time to get smart. And that's, that's how I sort of keep my sanity. Yeah. I love that. Uh, Wayne, this was an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for coming on, uh, and just educating us and walking us through what you're, what, how you're thinking and how your mindset's changed. And, um, I've definitely taken away a couple notes, especially this, uh, the secret shopping. I, uh, I might need to do that one. Um, so thank you again, Wayne. And, uh, uh, again to Mike for, for joining us today. Thank you guys. It was great fun. Thank you. Appreciate it.